0: Why should I be frightened of dying? See you no know, reason for it. You better go sometime. Hello, welcome to the Sam Reed's Near-Death Experiences podcast. I hope you're doing well and staying safe. Thank you very much for listening today. And I wanted to start off today by issuing a slight correction. Um... I, whenever I make a mistake, I, I kind of want to own up to it. And I believe in the last podcast, I was talking about different examples of acausal orderedness, which Jung had used in describing synchronicity. And one of them that I mentioned was that the number six has certain properties. One of the properties is that it is the it has uh, its factors or its divisors are, uh, you can add them up or multiply them and both get Six, so you can add up one, two, and three, or you can multiply one, two, and three. And I had said that that was the only number that can do that, and that is not true. Uh, uh, apparently, there are multiple numbers that that have that property. But uh, just wanted to point that out because I don't want to be saying things untrue if I can catch them. So, and in other news, I might be playing around with the format of the podcast a little bit. Um, for instance i don't this episode will not have music in the background of of the experience to some degree i think that the experience can kind of speak for itself and i don't know whether music is something that adds to it or takes away from it so i'm just going to be doing a little bit of experimentation with some of the sounds and cues and stuff throughout the episode so please bear with me uh i'm still trying to to figure out what what works the best so um yeah, if if it's crazy, distracting, or something, just let me know. So for today's episode, we have a fear death experience coming from Australia. Uh, a woman named Navina was attacked. I guess pretty close to her home, and she apparently did not have a actual near death experience, but one that was induced by fear. And that's something that we have uh touched on before a couple times but there were some really really fascinating aspects to this fear death experience in and what navina went through and some of the things that she saw and some of the ideas that emerge out of it and i thought it would be a really really interesting one to explore that might add a little bit to what we've covered in the past so Uh, Yeah, I'm looking forward to getting into this one. It is coming from nderf.org, which is where I usually get most of the near-death experiences from, the Near-Death Experience Research Foundation website, and I will post a link to this particular experience in the description of this episode. And I highly recommend you all go check them out because they do great work in, in compiling all these different spiritual and, you know, uh, near death experiences from around the world. But yeah, I really like this one. And thank you very much to Navina for wishing to share it, especially something that sounds so traumatizing and, and, and scary to, to go through. So uh, thanks to her. And uh, thank, thank you for listening. And without any further ado, we will get right into it. This is Navina's Fear Death Experience. On the night of my experience, I was attacked by two strangers in a parkland not far from home. My feeling was that I did not think it was possible to survive. My spirit body separated from the physical body, and my consciousness floated up and up and up. At some point, while I was up there, I was met by a female figure. Her presence was the embodiment of pure love. The next thing I remember was descending gently downwards towards my physical body, which was on the ground with the attack still in progress. As I drifted back down, I was aware of a silvery cord trailing downwards, stretching back and connecting to the physical body from where I was in my spirit body. The cord had an endless relaxed quality to it, and seemed to be able to stretch infinitely and retract easily. At that stage, I felt peaceful, calm, and in acceptance as I was only witnessing, not experiencing, what was happening to my physical body. As a part of the experience, I asked about the nature of reality and why stuff like this happens. It was an urgent question because I'd reached the limit of endurance to sustain emotional equilibrium regarding trauma, I absolutely could not go on without knowing the answer. I poured everything into it, my focus, my heart, and soul. Why did this happen to me? What caused it? Was it me? Was it because I was a bad person? Up until then, I'd never truly considered the possibility of judging myself as a bad person. Then, as if overlaid on reality, I was presented with an image of a fractal. As the motion of the curves of the fractal moved inwards towards itself, I saw the faces of each of my friends embedded in various sections of the fractal, and then repeating, I received the understanding that the people we know are somehow attached to our beliefs, and in a way, an external representation of our beliefs. I remember thinking, Oh, this friend is the mother within me, and oh, that person is the child, and other aspects of self. After the experience, I was immediately freed from the fear of death, and emotional healing began. I focused on loving myself, and looking at each one of my beliefs and teasing and untangling any repressed pain. It was slow and steady, until the day I became freed from any type of emotional pain. I'd also been given an inner connection to an intuitive mechanism which guides my spiritual evolution, and within this context, I've experienced many spiritual transformative experiences and events Including communicating and visitations or merging with beings such as Jesus, Mary, the Divine Mother, and Aboriginal ancestral spirits. Okay, so that was Navina's fear death experience. There's a lot that we can talk about, and I'm looking forward to doing that. Uh, first, I wanted to add a little context to the experience by reading a couple of the questions that come at the end of it on the Near-Death Experience Research Foundation website. And just uh, just to kind of flesh it out a little bit, this experience occurred in 1990, so it's about 30 years old. But the first question I wanted to read, did your experience include features consistent with your earthly beliefs? Content that was entirely not consistent with the beliefs you had at the time of your experience. It was completely new information presented in a mathematical format. During your experience, did you gain information about universal connection or oneness? Yes, in the form of a mathematical fractal, our beliefs can change the images we see attached to the fractal. Was the experience difficult to express in words? Uncertain. Only in the sense that I did not have names for things, like the fractal and the long silvery cord that was attached to my spirit body as I was returning to my physical body. Since this event, I have seen this type of cord on a friend of mine who passed away from a brain aneurysm in 2004. My spiritual teacher, Ama showed me a vision where the cord detached from my friend's physical body after Amma gave it a tug. The passing over was completed in an instant, and my friend happily jumped in Amma's arms. I felt a lot of peace after this vision. Okay, so I thought those added a bit of context and a little more information, uh, particularly around two of these symbolic images that we are going to be discussing in some depth the silver cord that attaches her to her body and also this fractal type of moment that happens in her experience. But first, I thought it might be a good place to start uh, at the beginning of her experience talking about this female being that she meets. Now, this female being, deity, sacred type of image, I suppose if we were to characterize it in, in terms of, of Jungian psychology, it would be an, an image of the self, of the totality of of the personality, the totality of the psyche, the the greater personality, so to speak. And it might just be, I haven't read enough near-death experiences, but it seems to me that usually encountering a female being is, is somewhat rarer than than a male being, but that's not, you know... It's very hard to tell. That's that's purely anecdotal, and perhaps if that is the case, it could have something to do that with the fact that I mostly read Western Judeo-Christian type of near-death experiences, and the Judeo-Christian tradition does not have a, I don't know, a strong uh, female presence in the in the Godhead. So to speak, there's Mary and and numerous figures in the Bible uh, which are female, but that is something that Christianity and Judaism tends to lack: is this this female aspect of God. So it is very interesting and fascinating to see that that kind of neglected aspect of the female side of God appear spontaneously in near-death experiences, and and it's not like I haven't. We haven't come across, you know, female beings and near death experiences before, but but like I said, for some reason it seems to me a, a little less common than than the reverse, and so I, I really enjoy getting to to see this other aspect of of perhaps divinity and and the sacred and and obviously um, the divine containing both opposites. It, should contain female just as equally and just as powerfully as, as the male side, which seems to be overrepresented, at least in, in the West. And just as a quick historical aside, uh, Jung thought one of the most important moments of the 20th century was in 1950 when uh, the Pope declared the dogma of the assumption of, of Mary to heaven. That uh, I'll, I'll read it real quick here. We proclaim and define it to be a dogma revealed by God that the Immaculate Mother of God, Mary, ever virgin, when the course of her earthly life was finished, was taken up body and soul into the glory of heaven. And the reason he thought that was so important is, is kind of what I alluded to earlier is it is it kind of represents a um, a reevaluation of the feminine and and an inclusion of the feminine into the godhead of not only not only the feminine but also matter she was her whole body was taking up into into heaven and he, even though this is a dogma and it's you know the pope uh, kind of just willing it into existence i suppose what uh, what it it possibly represents is a, is a gradual at least psychologically um an integration of that, that missing piece, that that uh, fixing that one sidedness of of overemphasis on, on the masculine, particularly in re- um, in reference to the divine and to God. So, so it, uh, the fact that she encounters an, a this powerful radiating feminine being that is the essence of pure love, I think that's that's really interesting. And the fact that, again, as with so many near-death experiences, that this is a being of pure love, that that love seems to be a, a hallmark of of most of these near-death experiences, and it's very much present in this one as well. So from there, I suppose we can start to talk about this idea of the silver cord. I think we've talked about this idea of a silver cord before, but I can't remember which which episode it was. I I know we've touched on it somewhere, but it's it's definitely something that you hear about, not only in near-death experiences, but also in some of the surrounding, I don't know, phenomena that accompanies near-death experiences, such as astral projection and out-of-body experiences and mystical experiences and that sort of thing that... It's it's kind of become part of the, the lexicon of, of uh, this idea of, of the tether to the body. And presumably, as Navina talks about in the answer to that question that I read, once the connection is cut, then one dies or one passes on, and one cannot return to one's body. And so it's it's like this sort of bungee cord that, that connects. The astral body, so to speak, and the the physical body, or even perhaps a dream body. I, I think it's it's um, shown up in certain dream uh, dreams of of people that have this highly mystical or spiritual aspect. But again, what we're what we're dealing with that ultimately at its foundation is a symbolic image. Not everyone experiences a silver cord. I mean clearly just from the ones that we've read not maybe maybe it was there but people don't necessarily talk about it perhaps but it it doesn't it seems to be common but not ubiquitous it's it's not everyone has it and and so that runs into one of the difficulties that these type of experiences present is that there are these common motifs but obviously it's a little bit different for everyone and so we just have to take take each individual experience at face value and and to look at it as to its underlying meaning and what the underlying meaning of a silver cord or a cord itself might be is just the principle of of connection of relation and and that's spelled out pretty clearly and and from what is said about what it means and um and even in in her description of of the cord being cut for her friend that who then passed on it's it's that idea it's the the connecting principle between i guess these different aspects of of life the physical and perhaps the the psychological but i think to some degree we we see the same type of imagery at least in uh, if you remember back to henry's near death experience where he saw this latticed kind of network of different souls who are all connected in, in a certain way, and I, I think that kind of has the same aspect to it of this uh, a lines running between different souls, or a, a cord or a line running between two aspects of, of existence, or physical and 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 spiritual, so to speak. It's 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 a symbolic, concrete, well. Concrete is, is tough to, to quantify in this case, but uh, obviously an image or, or a symbol that represents something meaningful, which in this case is, is the connection to the body. And for whatever reason, the experience itself, that autonomous factor which chooses how the experience unfolds and, and what meaningful images and symbols are presented to the experiencer, for whatever reason, it chose to express this connection to the body via this image of the silver cord. And what's cool is that we can look at different examples of of this idea of a silver cord throughout human history. Since it happens objectively to the ex- experiencer by the experience, we can find uh, perhaps other examples of this in, in, in our cultural uh treasure chest of, of things that people in various places and, and different times have believed and and perhaps experienced in their own right and, and served as some foundation or some rooting to their whatever their particular belief was. For example, I mean, I mentioned all the astral projection out of body sort of thing, which I do not have any personal experience in, but um, is interesting But one thing that I didn't know that I found out by doing a bit of research was that this silver cord is alluded to or mentioned in the Bible. And I had no idea. I thought it was just something that was kind of new agey, kind of associated with some of these spiritual type of circles. But I'm going to read the verse. This is coming from Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 6 through 7. Remember him before the silver cord is severed, or the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring, or the wheel broken at the well, and the dust returns to the ground it came from, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. So, I yeah, I didn't know that that had some, some actual direct reference to um, a part of the Bible, but not only does it have that, but there are also certain allusions, as I mentioned, in in mythology around the world. For instance, the Fates, the idea of the Fates in in Greek mythology and and Roman mythology too. In the Greek case, they were called the Moirai, and in the for the Romans, they were called the Parse. But I'll just read a little bit about them. There were three again female deities, which spun the thread of one's life and determined how long it was to be and when to cut it. So let me just read a little bit about it. In ancient Greek religion and mythology, the morai, lots, destinies, apportioners, often known in English as the fates, were the white-robed incarnations of destiny. Their Roman equivalent was the parsee. And there are other equivalents in other cultures that descend from the proto-Indo-European culture. Their number became fixed at three: Clotho, spinner, Lachesis, a lotter, and Atropos, the unturnable, a metaphor for death. So there are, are different examples of this in, in different cultures as well, not only the Romans, but also uh, in Norse mythology, the Norns, I suppose. And what's interesting is they often have this aspect of, there's three of them, and they're associated with the female, the uh, feminine, and uh, have to do with spinning a thread of of life. So here uh, I'll read a little bit. uh, In Norse mythology, the Norns are female beings who rule the destiny of gods and men, twining the thread of life. They set up the laws and decide on the lives of children of men. Uh, not only that, but we have um, in Lithuanian mythology, there is Laima. Laima is the personification of destiny, and her most important duty was to prophesy how the life of a newborn will take place. So this is a very widespread sort of idea, especially connecting this idea of a, a thread with one's life, that it has a certain length, and and this is determined by fate and destiny. And I believe we mentioned before in a a previous episode why this might be associated with the number three, and that's something that we'll touch on here as we go along, uh, particularly as we get into some of this mathematical fractal stuff with number symbolism, if I don't lose my mind trying to talk about it. But um, it's... Yeah, it's very interesting that here you have this the symbolism of the sil- silver cord as as well as the thread of life, and you could also maybe extend it out a little bit to to talk about maybe the this very common symbol of of the river of life, this kind of long thread of of water flowing towards the ocean or or to to the beyond something like that this is, uh, we're going to try and talk about this a little more as we go, I'll, I'll go along further in the episode, but this this interpenetration of, of the meaning of some of these symbols, that's something that I've, we've talked about before, like when we were talking about the axis mundi, and, and the idea that it can be a column, or a tree, or a pillar, or a mountain, that sort of thing, that these symbols don't have a don't have. They aren't necessarily fixed in any one place, but they kind of, the meaning, goes back and forth between these different images, which makes it fascinating to to try and uh, try to speak this this strange language of of the psyche of of, of inner experience. So, very interesting that that she she has this this image appear and and it serves its its purpose and in, in keeping her tethered to her body to which she eventually returns which is good but before she returns to her body completely she seems to have the opportunity to ask some questions and and this one line was a little unclear to me about how she had reached a limit and and with emotional trauma and and she had to have certain answers. I, I'm not sure whether she's referring to what is going on at the moment to her physical body, this awful traumatic attack, or if she's she's referring to some things in her past where she's just sort of reached her breaking point, reached a a line in the sand a, a threshold, which she needs to get some answers or she's not going to be able to to keep going or something like that but very uh, very powerful that she gets the chance to to start to get some of these deep questions answered and that seems to have a very powerful impact on her once she returns to her body and one thing that i I found quite compelling was this this some of her questions seem to be I guess really focused on self-reflection uh, and she mentions that she had never considered the the possibility of viewing herself as a bad person and it seems to me that there a uh, part of part of the process of, of gaining wisdom or, or to or gaining parts of of one's own self or, or self-knowledge self-reflection is is to be able to look at the the parts of you and the parts of your soul the parts of your past your past actions which are things that you don't want to look at the 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 shadow side of life the the bad and and the the moments where you you did something wrong and and it's so easy just to shove that under the rug and and keep on whistling as you walk down the street and and try to forget about it but that, that path to self-knowledge seems to require for some reason that we look at at that dark stuff that we would rather not so I found that qualification of hers very powerful that she she had to ask that question was was I a bad p- bad person and it's it's not like the the experience itself necessarily answers that in a very direct way like in some form of a life review or something but the answer that it does give is is just, <laughs> it's absolutely uh, profound and, and, and mind blowing, this, this sort of fractal part of her experience. I'll, I'll start with a disclaimer. Obviously, from the beginning of this episode, I had to issue a correction because I had said something wrong regarding math. Math is not my strongest subject. I'm interested in it, and there, I'll explain why, but I'm going to do my best to try to take this inner experience of Navina's seriously, and by doing that, try to, to make sense of, of what she's trying to describe with this word of fractals. And I will do my best, and so it's not going to be a uh, a very... Strict or, or perhaps necessarily, complete description of fractals that I'll, I'll try and talk about, but I'll do my best. And part of the reason this is so fascinating to me is is some of the things perhaps I've been mentioning in the past few episodes of of talking about some of the work of Marie Louise von Franz, um, who was a, a Jungian analyst, and and she had a particular um part of her work that had to deal with with the psychology and the psychological qualities of numbers and this idea that Jung had towards the end of his life that perhaps number could serve as a as a unifier between the inside and the outside, between the outer natural world world and the inner psychological world. And it's a very fascinating idea because we don't tend to think of numbers having any psychological qualities to them. We think of them almost strictly quantitatively and to to examine them as symbols, as having numinous qualities like the Pythagoreans saw divinity in, in numbers. And, you know, as we've progressed, we've gradually gotten away from that. But to try to to examine them from that angle of of what what they might mean for us psychologically i th- I think that's absolutely fascinating so to see a mathematical idea or a mathematical i don't know area of study such as fractals appearing in a near death experience that's that's very exciting <laughs> for me so I'm going to do my best and and we'll see if we can can make anything of it, but to start with, I wanted to Read a uh, a couple paragraphs from uh, well the uh, the book *Psyche and Matter*, which the last episode of the podcast was from, and uh, it's one of the later chapters. And, and And this will give, I think, it gives a good illustration of, of what this idea of looking at numbers psychologically and and in the f- forms that they express themselves in in psychological inner, spiritual, subjective experiences, what that might mean. So let me read that real quick. Now, the Chinese used number especially to express qualitative time phases. For them, there are oneness moments, so to speak, times of duality, times of fourfoldness, The whole I Ching is nothing more than a most impressive symbolic system of such a play or order of possible archetypal moments, expressed in the form of numerical permutations of lines. This makes use of something we know but tend to forget. Archetypes are not only relatively permanent structures in the unconscious psyche, they are dynamisms and if they are dynamisms, i.e., if they are in movement, they enter time. We can actually observe such time phases in the constellation of an archetype. In most cases, when any archetype constellates, it first manifests as one archetypal image in a dream. When it moves towards the threshold of consciousness, it generally appears doubled, as two identical or nearly identical images, two people, two dogs, two trees. We take this as a sign that the unconscious content is beginning to reach the threshold of consciousness. That would be the two-phase of its time. Three groups of beings symbolize that that very archetype is actively possessing the ego, forcing upon it actions or thoughts. That is why fate gods are so often triadic. When the same content appears in its four phase, it has reached its best possibility for being realized in our consciousness, namely through the four functions. Seen from this angle, number is not only quantity, but has also a temporal quality. One would be the quality of origin, beginning point two the quality of polarization or symmetry, three of directed action, movement, four of confinement, consolidation, and so forth. Okay, so I thought this was a very powerful description of, of how we might balance out this other side of number which we are so unacquainted with. You know, we're used to number being used to count and, and for physics and for Equations and and this strictly quantitative sense, but uh, von Franz talks about the the Chinese view or the historical Chinese view of, of number being qualities of certain moments of certain moments of time, and how through use of divination and oracles such as the I Ching, the Chinese would use number to give a certain reading of, of a moment what is the quality of of a, of a given situation of a given moment at the archetypal quality and I thought it was a fascinating idea that and uh, I'm taking this just from her own reporting because i I don't have any direct experience of it but she was a psychologist and and she would have patients bring in multiple dreams over a long period of time and what she seems to be suggesting is that if you have a series of dreams that you can, can read as certain life situations are going on in, a, in the life of, of a patient, of someone else, or perhaps your own dreams, that you might be able to see these numerical patterns that correlate with the emergence of some archetypal symbolic content. Um, that which impresses itself upon our consciousness or our, our ego and that w- when it first emerges it it appears as one image and then perhaps as it gets closer to the threshold of being conscious it it can appear as two i i believe that's that's might be some of the basis behind of the urban legend or the urban myth of, of well i guess Urban legends, probably not the right word, but the the folktale, the folk idea of of seeing one's doppelganger, and that means that one is about to die. It's like this idea of, of you being doubled means you're on the threshold of of the unconscious, and and that's what she seems to suggest, having looked at many people's dreams. This this idea of two ness being on the threshold or the boundary of consciousness and the unconscious, and three, as as we mentioned in talking about the fate gods and goddesses i mean and and uh the symbolism of the number three as as it has appeared in certain near-death experiences has to do with a certain possession of the ego or a directed flow of of energy of, of movement towards something and i think that definitely at least lines up to some degree with with when we come across three beings in a near-death experience, a near-death experience is clearly possessing the the consciousness of the experiencer and and acting on a, a you know in a directed fashion towards the ego. I mean, the person is autonomously, automatically lifted up into this unfolding, pow- uh, powerful, profound experience and and so this aspect of, of threeness i think very much fits that at least coming from von franz's description and it's pretty common that we see trios of angels or beings i mean we've read several i i read one this past weekend where the experiencer meets three angels or three beings with one being taller than than the other two. So that seems to be a, a kind of archetypal or, or underlying motif, which, uh, according to von Franz, and and who knows if she's right, but according to her work and, and how she's seen it appear in her patient's dreams, the threefoldedness of, of uh, an image of a symbol r- represents a certain over- uh, Overcoming of the ego, a possession of the ego, a directed flow of energy, or a movement towards something, and what she seems to suggest is that it moves towards the fourth or the fourfoldness, which is perhaps the best best time to uh, to integrate it or to consolidate it. And so that that is just <laughs> a very interesting idea that we might be able to look at number in this particularly. Uh, different way from what we're used to of being meaning something that something psychological within us that that there could be some overlap that numbers as as these ordering factors can can express themselves in a you know you know uh, (laughs) the least scientific least quantifiable type of Subject that is possible to talk about, which is someone's experience of death and and what happens afterwards and and the afterlife and that sort of thing and that is is very very uh fascinating to me and so not to make you know too long a point of it, but here in in novena's near death experience um, we we have this Cord, right? This this silver cord, which perhaps is connected to this uh, idea of the 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 thread of life, and that has this connection to threefold triadic deities of goddesses. And Navina experiences a, a goddess or a feminine being of some kind. So there's all that, which I don't know what to make of, but seems to have some some resonance at least. And then we get into this. This uh, talk of fractals and this unfolding experience as a sort of answer to her questions, and so I'm going to do my best to try to, to talk about it. A, a fractal is a is a self similar pattern that repeats itself, so to speak, at, at, at multiple scales. Um, it it's not necessarily has to be self similar, but but i think the the hallmark of fractals is that it has a complexity and a, a certain i don't know roughness that we don't really find in perfect shapes and geometric figures that fractals are closer to that of nature and and that they repeat the same pattern at at multiple levels of of analysis and Theoretical fractals, I suppose, are infinite. Like if you go on YouTube or something and you search for the Mandelbrot set or the Julia set or something, you'll get a bunch of trippy videos of of the camera zooming in on a a particular shape, and as it zooms in on the boundaries of the shape, the shape itself will start to appear again on the boundaries, and it it kind of infinitely goes into this repeating self-similar pattern, which, which, and that's what I suppose, now this is a very rough layman's definition of it, of it, but that seems to be what what defines a fractal. And I'm sure there's some stricter um, uh, definition of, of what a fractal is. But One that I did come across that was very interesting, at least, is that one aspect of fractals is that they have um, a kind of a a dimension that is in between what we usually think of as dimensions. So usually, you know, we think of dimensions being whole numbers. We're we in 3D, right? Uh, 2D is a the surface of a plane or a sheet of paper, that sort of thing. Uh, 1D is a, a straight line. That's one dimension, two dimension, three dimension, four dimension, that sort of thing. But uh, what fractals seem to do is they seem to exist in between uh, fractions of, of these dimensions that, um, you know, you can have a a fractal that has a dimension of 1.57 or something. And, and what that means is it's, it's got so much complexity on the, on the boundaries of it that it, it, it kind of borders between these, these two different dimensions. Um, for instance, uh, one example that that I heard that was, uh, I guess, trying to show uh, how this might emerge in nature, and these are supposedly everywhere in nature, is the idea of, of a coastline, like the coastline of of Britain, right? So if you zoomed way out and you just drew kind of a rough figure around it, you wouldn't have a whole lot of detail, but as you zoomed in, you would get more more detail around all the nooks and crannies and zoomed in more you'd get more detail more detail more detail and all these these little variations on the the edge all these bays and coves and and you know points where it juts out and comes back all this gives it instead of being a, a straight line has has this kind of dimensionality to it that gets it closer not all the way but closer to being um being something that is uh two dimensional or or that the surface of a um of the ocean when it's flat you can think of that as as being completely 2D but if you get a bunch of waves and crests and a very rough sea or something then that starts to get a bit of extra dimensionality to it like it it becomes I don't know 2.3 D Right, that these waves and crests start to get a bit of of volume to the surface, and as you get closer and closer in finer detail, you could, you could have this kind of self-similarity or, or even more complexity as you got closer, um, and in different scales. So from the farthest out to the almost as close as you can get, at least in, in nature, that they seem to be finite. But you know, for For theoretical ones that we, that mankind can, I I don't include myself in we, uh, that that, uh, mankind can create uh, on computers and and that sort of thing. They can have this infinite aspect to them. So just to let the people who know what they're talking about explain it a little bit, I'm going to read um, a bit of what I found about fractals just to, so we'll see how close I got, okay? Unlike topological dimensions, the fractal index can take non-integer values, indicating that a set fills its space qualitatively and quantitatively differently from how an ordinary geometrical set does. For instance, a curve with a fractal dimension very near 1, say 1.10, behaves quite like an ordinary line, but a curve with a fractal dimension 1.9 winds convolutedly through space very nearly like a surface. Similarly, a surface with a fractal dimension of 2.1 fills space very much like an ordinary surface, but one with a fractal dimension of 2.9 folds and flows to fill space rather nearly like a volume. Okay, so that hopefully describes a little bit of, of what I was trying to capture there of saying that fractals have this can can have a non integer value for their dimension, which means they can have a fraction for their their dimension, and I believe they're called fractal dimensions, right so you can have a one point five dimension or a two point two seven dimension and and that that paragraph there kind of described the differences of of how they they act based on how close they are or how distant they are from a given dimension. Let me read some other ones. The consensus is that theoretical fractals are infinitely self-similar, iterated, and detailed mathematical constructs having fractal dimensions, of which many examples have been formulated and studied in great depth. Fractals are not limited to geometric patterns, but can also describe processes in time. Fractal patterns with various degrees of self-similarity have been rendered or studied in images, structures, and sounds, and found in nature, technology, art, architecture, and law. Fractals are of particular relevance in the field of chaos theory, since the graphs of the most chaotic processes are fractals. So yeah, that's, I guess, a better explanation of what I was able to give, but I I, I think what that might show a little more is is kind of the wide variety of the applications of fractals and, and all those different fields. Also that they are iterated, which I suppose means they're formed by taking a certain mathematical process and then repeating it, taking the value you get out of it and plugging it back into the, I don't know, function, equation, whatever, <laughs> the, the mathematical of uh, I guess equation or function and, and running it again and again and you get these these patterns emerging and so the reason I'm taking the time to talk about this is because this is how the fear death experience chose to express this certain particular meaning to Novena okay I'm not just doing it to to try to you know talk about something which I should not be talking about, obviously, but it's because the experience has this certain mathematical aspect, which seems to me that that, that was kind of what it impressed upon Novena is, is that, that it was a fractal, and, and I don't know to what degree Novena knows about fractals, if she's mathematically inclined or not, or or whether this was the best way of describing it, but clearly the experience itself seemed to make a point of of having this fractal aspect to it. Now, the last thing that I'm going to read about fractals is some of their um, examples in Nature, Okay. Approximate fractals found in nature display self-similarity over extended but finite scale ranges. The connection between fractals and leaves, for instance, is currently being used to determine how much carbon is contained in trees. Phenomena known to have fractal features include actin cytoskeleton, algae, animal coloration patterns, blood vessels and pulmonary vessels, clouds and rainfall areas coastlines, craters, crystals, DNA, earthquakes, fault lines, geometrical optics, heart rates, heart sounds, lightning bolts, mountain goat horns, mountain ranges, ocean waves, pineapple. (laughs) That's the last one I got there. Um, But there's a reason why I I wanted to to read those to you, because it seems to be... uh, A very fundamental aspect of nature to appear in this kind of fractal form, and I I don't know the the necessary uh, the philosophy to be able to talk about it. Whether it's like the you know we can imagine these perfect shapes geometrically and study them and and use math to describe them, but the real world is a little less perfect. It's a little uh, rougher. It's a little in between dimensions. It's not quite. Um, as perfect as, as some of our ideals and 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 models can be, but it has a certain well, chaotic and 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 um, I don't know aspect to it that it's it's not idealized, it's not perfect, and that fractals seem to be an excellent way of describing this, especially um, when it has a repeating of a certain pattern or a certain self similarity that it, it repeats as it's. Uh, changes in scale. In fact, there's a a great book, which I read a long time ago, which I want to reread by a man named Jeffrey West, and it's called Scale. And he's looking at how the size and and scale of things changes their, their nature, and it has a lot to do with fractals and that sort of thing. I wish I could give you a better description than that. But the the reason that I'm bringing up all these natural examples of it, and it's you know everywhere from the ocean to trees to coastlines to all sorts of that huge long list that I read, pineapples, of all things. But uh, the reason I'm doing that is because I'm trying. Uh, what I want to do is, is try to understand what, like like von Franz was doing with numbers. What might a a fractal be symbolic of in in the psyche? if If all of nature is is can be expressed using fractal geometry and fractal dimensions i mean uh, our consciousness is just as much a a formation of nature as anything else our our the unconscious out of which consciousness emerged is is a product of nature, although we don't like usually talk about it as such but we we emerged from from evolution from from the earth from uh autopoetic processes that assembled life that put itself together and evolved over the uh, millennia and and into our form and and so our our conscious and our unconscious our psyche would have um, I would assume have some natural aspects and perhaps perhaps that lends fractals to being in in a very apt and suitable symbol or image to express a certain nature of our inner experience of the psyche and what it seems to suggest before we get into what navina experienced but just if if we were to take the idea of a fractal psychologically i suppose would be that certain meaning of symbolic images or forms or contents can be repeated self-similar at many different levels or scales or perhaps uh, many different images like we discussed before, with the idea of of the silver cord and the thread of fate and the river of life or the axis mundi and the column or the, the pillar or the or the tree or the mountain that the meaning on all these different scales of, 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 of inner psychological experience, whether it's, um, directly in one's dream and a near death experience or, or a, uh, um, a culture's mythology that has emerged over, you know, however many years, uh, 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 you know, decades, centuries of, of time, uh, Having interactions with <laughs> an objective psychic process through people's dreams and and intuitions, that these these this meaning is is self similar in in some way. It has a, a certain fractal, perhaps <laughs> a, a fractal would be a good metaphor for describing it. I won't call it a fractal because I think that would probably be going a bit too far, but. Having the obviously the image of a, a fractal appear in a near death experience is is using that what that means to express something about about the experience itself about what what is actually going on in Naveena's case, um, and perhaps we can use that to look at all of our own inner experiences and and what it might be suggesting, and I think if If I can say anything at all that perhaps what that is capturing is the self-similarity of of meaning, the re- repetition of the pattern of meaning in different symbols. And one of the I don't know the the definition of of symbol that Jung and and Murcia Eliad, the professor of religion, comparative religion, often use is that it's it's something inexhaustible, a symbol contains more than than can be articulated it has that infiniteness to it you know you can keep digging keep scratching away at it keep keep uh turning it over and looking at it and and you'll never quite get to the bottom of it and i think that that aspect of it could definitely be represented in a symbolic form by a fractal particularly that a fractal is is somewhat infinitely repeating at different scales i think that that aspect of of fractals might be able to capture that idea of the permeability of of meaning in and, and and in different symbolic images or forms so god that's okay that's that's as, as far as i want to go with that you know that's any more in my brain might melt so In Naveena's case, this fractal experience, these curves start to form images of her people she knows, of her friends, and she receives the knowledge that the people in our lives seem to hold some particular meaning of ourselves, that they seem to represent certain parts of our beliefs. And in fact, the answer to the question that I read, which was... Let me pull it up here. During your experience, did you gain any information about universal connection or oneness? Yes, in the form of a mathematical fractal. Our beliefs can change the images we see attached to the fractal. So what this and the relevant part of navina's experience seem to suggest is this is an illustration or a confirmation of, of the uh, projection of the unconscious process of attaching parts of ourselves onto the outer world in the form of, of different people or, or certain situations uh, it's an unconscious process that's automatically happens and 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 it perhaps drives us towards certain people drives us away from other people that there's there's this idea that that the reason we care and engage with the world is, is this enmeshing and in, in projection that we are trying to find ourselves out in, in you know uh, our relationships and our uh, our friendships and and all sorts of things that are happening out in the world. And it's not like we we do that on purpose, but that's it's kind of what just the way it is. It's a, a natural state of affairs, and and. And uh, I think what Jung tends to suggest is that in childhood, you know, you kind of emerge out of complete oneness, one identification with the world and gradually gain your sense of separateness, your sense of self, and and the process of maturation and, and development and growth would be to continually be able to withdraw these pr- projections, these parts of yourself back into who you are and, and your own psyche and, and to be able to recognize them as as parts of of you or, or things that that are 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 psychological and, and to be able to see the outer object for for what it is and have a genuine relationship with it. Now I wanted to read just a couple of quotes from Jung to to illustrate this point because I think it's it's very important. So this is from General Aspects of Dream Psychology, paragraph five oh seven. Just as we tend to assume that the world is as we see it, we naively suppose that people are as we imagine them to be. All the contents of our unconscious are constantly being projected into our surroundings, and it is only by recognizing certain properties of the objects as projections or imagos that we are able to distinguish them from the real properties of the objects. Cum grano salis, we always see our own unavowed mistakes in our opponent. Excellent examples of this are to be found in all personal quarrels. Unless we are possessed of an unusual degree of self-awareness, we shall never see through our projections, but must always succumb to them, because the mind in its natural state presupposes the existence of such projections. It is the natural and given thing for unconscious contents to be projected. Okay, so that hopefully illustrates it at least to some degree. And you know, just like Navina says in her experience, uh, I remember thinking, oh this friend is the mother within me, oh that person is the child and other aspects of the self. She seems to be describing the, the exact same phenomena that that Jung is talking about in, in the form of projection. And there are also mythological examples of, of projection and, and certain uh, religious ideas, such as the Buddhist and Hindu um, figure of Maya, which tends uh, had to have a lot of definitions, but I suppose the the underlying one is the illusory nature of of the world, the illusion of the world that that confuses us and and makes us um, act desirously and and in an attached sort of way that Maya. Is not saying that the world is unreal, but that there's a sort of magic or illusion aspect to it, which um, makes us not act in in actual harmony with with the outer world, because we are actually interacting with with various parts of ourselves, and that triggers all sorts of emotional reactions, and and and. Um, you know instantaneous instinctual reactions to a given stimulus or something that that causes problems and causes perhaps in, in the buddhist or hindu sense a, a bad karma the bad actions which which cycle and you know cause suffering for everybody else but that's just one example of, of this phenomena that, that comes from a, a vastly different culture and a a vast, vastly different setting it's the same idea of, of we're not interacting with the real world per se that, um, you know, like in Navina's case, that that certain friends and certain people that they know or that she knows represent parts of her beliefs or parts of herself. I might read um, one or two more just to drive the point home and then we can move on. But it's just such a, a fascinating idea and, and one that I you know touch on quite frequently because i think it's it it seems to be something that that is an accurate way of describing at least how we act and the fact that a near death experience posits this this type of phenomena as as the answer to all of all of navina's self reflective questions of of you know, why did this happen to me? What caused it? Was it me? Was I a bad person? All of these these questions, this was the answer that the experience gave, was that to depict this this phenomena of projection in a fascinating, fractal type of form. And who knows what that means. But um, yeah, let me read a few more things, and then we can wrap up. So this is uh, another quote of Jung on the effect of projection. The effect of projection is to isolate the subject from his environment, since instead of a real relation to it, there is now only an illusory one. Projections change the world into a replica of one's own unknown face. In the last analysis, therefore, they lead to an autoerotic or autistic condition in which one dreams a world whose reality remains forever unattainable. The resultant sentiment d'incompletude and the still worse feeling of sterility are in turn explained by projection as the malevolence of the environment, and by means of this vicious circle, the isolation is intensified. The more projections are thrust in between the subject and the environment, the harder it is for the ego to see through its illusions. A 45-year-old patient who had suffered from a compulsion neurosis since he was 20 and had become completely cut off from the world once said to me, But I can never admit to myself that I've wasted the best 25 years of my life. It is often tragic to see how blatantly a man bungles his own life and the lives of others, yet remains totally incapable of seeing how much the whole tragedy originates in himself and how he continually feeds it and keeps it going. Not consciously, of course, for consciously he is engaged in a bewailing and cursing of faithless world that recedes further and further into the distance. Rather, it is an unconscious factor which spins the illusions that veil his world, and what is being spun is a cocoon which in the end will completely envelop him. Okay, so that's kind of a bleak picture in which um, uh, Jung is talking about one of his patients who who can't get out of these projections that he's kind of wrapped in, and I, I think we can all relate to that on on a certain level at certain points, points of our life. Um, another quote which I, I thought was very interesting, which might kind of show the broad aspect of this phenomena and, and how it... Manifests and influences us um, is coming from the uh, his collected works, volume eight, the structure of the psyche. The collective unconscious, so far as we can say anything about it at all, appears to consist of mythological motifs or primordial images, for which reason the myths of all nations are its real exponents. In fact, the whole of mythology could be taken as a sort of projection of the collective unconscious. We can therefore study the collective unconscious in two ways, either in mythology or in the analysis of the individual. And I like that quote because it, it kind of well, lays the groundwork for, for how I try to approach these incredible spiritual experiences that people have and, and near-death experiences and fear-death experiences. And and what he's talking about is that these these archetypal motifs or images or patterns, which which emerge, we can see almost in uh, projected over time in, in the form of myths and and religious ideas and and very and folk tales and those sort of things, or you can see them in the individual experience of of um, uh, a given person a, in a dream or a or an N D E or something like that. So it's kind of these two ways to to explore the phenomena and I I think that's spot on. I mean that's what I, I try to do. You know, you someone experiences a, a given image, like a silver cord or something in a near death experience and and you can try to investigate it by pulling in aspects of that same image or symbol from mythology, from um, uh world history from from world's uh, the world's religious ideas so it's a fascinating type of thing and 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 it it's it's forming the basis of this sort of symbolic language which is so difficult to to understand and, and to make sense of why does someone see a silver cord why does someone see a a, a fractal or see god as an eye or an, as an egg or it's like if you were just coming at it without this this any um you know vocabulary to deal with with these symbols or images it would just be nonsensical and and that's what some people think that NDEs are and you know for them that that could be the case but but just because you don't speak a language doesn't mean that it's not meaningful <laughs> so um and and what some of these quotes from jung illustrate about this process of projection seems to be that the uh that the gradual withdrawal of some of these entanglements these these this cocoon being able to to uh integrate those those aspects of of oneself that you encounter in in the outer environment leads to uh de- growth development uh better Mental health, perhaps, uh, a better well-being, a greater sense of self. And it seems as though that was the case for Navina as well. She talks about how after her experience, she, uh, she was freed from this sort of fear of death and, and began, began emotionally healing. Um, she said, I focused on loving myself and looking at each one of my beliefs and teasing and untangling any repressed pain. It was slow and steady until the day I became freed from any type of emotional pain. And certainly, you know, these sort of things can express themselves as trauma, as, as pain and 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 you know, there are people who've been through hell and it's just it's a nightmare to try and, and disentangle and and that's why you know, psychologists and psychoanalysts and therapists all have such an important role to to try and help people. And, and um, but this this aspect that was that was expressed in her experience of of having showing this process of projection, or or, or I mean, this it's a pairing a pairing of a um, of a meaning and an image uh, spontaneously and it's experienced on the outside or, or, you know, it could be experienced on the inside. If you dream of a friend who's acting in a certain way, then, you know, it could be a relation to how you feel about that friend on the outside as well. But it it's a pairing of a meaning and an image and trying to untangle those things, um, hopefully can, can lead to very positive results to be able to have a real, relationship with the world and real relationship with people and not just be you know screaming at someone that that is (laughs) some part of yourself that that you don't want to look at or something you know and i know that this is all a very simplistic way of of talking about it but it, it seems like it's a very profound thing and especially if that is what is presented by the experience as the solution to her to her reaching the Breaking point essentially is, is how she described it, reaching the limit of, of emotional pain, and the experience showed her how to to start to free herself from these entanglements of these attachments of of parts of herself, parts of her beliefs onto onto people. At least that seems to be be the suggestion, and then from that it seems as though she has. Uh, as a result of the experience, or the the healing that she went through in the aftermath of the experience, gained some connection to figures of, of her greater self. So she, she talks about Aboriginal ancestor spirits, the Jesus, Mary, the Divine Mother, that sort of thing, which we often hear of people having had a near-death experience or fear-death experience as having this kind of Open pathway to to a voice or or a sense of a conscience or intuition or that sort of thing a connection with the greater aspect of the the soul, so to speak or the spirit psyche and and that seems to be a fairly common after effect of of many experiencers and so it's it's very quite an amazing thing that that through such a awful traumatic Attack that she went through it. She she manages to find find this solution, find this healing, um, and how the experience presented itself in this this sort of fractal form. Okay, so I think we'll we'll end there. Um, thank you very much for listening. I hope you found this useful, informative, thought provoking, any of the above. If you would like to send me an email, you can do so at samreadsneardeathexperiences at gmail.com. You can uh, like the Facebook page. You can uh, uh, please leave a a five-star review on iTunes if you enjoy the podcast and maybe share it with a friend if you think they'd like it. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you all are staying safe, staying well uh, in such a, a trying time for everybody. So now, instead of ending with a quote on death, we are going to do something slightly different. I wanted to share a song that I found very impactful. Okay, so this song is coming from the archives of Alan Lomax, who was an ethnomusicologist and historian of music, who uh, in the early part of the 20th century went around to uh, various different cultures and, and locations, and collected field recordings of folk tunes, and much like mythology, kind of emerges as as this collective aspect of our psyche. I think the same could be said for these old traditional songs and melodies and tunes as well. And so, it's a fascinating thing to to get into. And I heard one one song which. Honestly, just made me cry. Like immediately, it it, ha- it was so powerful. But um, it it was recorded in 1951 in the home of um, a Scottish man named Callum Johnston, and the singer was Flora McNeil. And it's just an acapella, um, traditional Gaelic Scottish ballad. It's called Alindun Alindun I I don't quite know the pronunciation. I will uh, post a link. So you can hear this song, uh, I'll post a link to the Lomax Library in the description of this episode. But it, it's it's just beautiful. I have no, it's it's sung, I believe, in Gaelic, and so I have no idea what the what the words mean. And I subsequently had to to look up kind of what it was about. But um, it's it's a sad ballad of a a woman who loses her her young husband or, or lover out. At sea, he, he gets into a shipwreck, and, and it's a sad ballad lament um, that the woman is singing. And the reason I wanted to share this, besides the fact that we've never really done anything like this before, is is the fact that it kind of has a certain resonance, resonance with what something that I, I mentioned before. It's like, just because I, I couldn't understand anything that she was saying, I still... Understood when I heard it, and and I, you know, drove me to tears. the 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 meaning that is inherent in 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 this song, and I think to some degree that that's reflective of of certain um, spiritual dreams or near death experiences that we don't always get the language of these wild, far ranging symbols. These. This ancient language of of dreams and and images and symbols but but we we get the meaning we we get that love that's that's always seems to be present there and so i thought that was something really beautiful and and i love this this particular song and i wanted to share it with you all so please enjoy
1: Just i She you know